Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams, or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a breakup. Games often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, as I search for my perfect console. My guest today is a software engineer who, in 2021, released a word game that soon became a global obsession. He grew up in a Welsh farming village, attended the Royal Holloway University, then moved to North America to study for his master's. In 2011, after graduating, he joined the staff of the website Reddit, where he began to design experimental games such as The Button, Place, and in his spare time, a game called Wordle. Several years later, he returned to the Wordle prototype, which he finished and uploaded to his personal website in October 2021. Within a month, the game had 90 players. Within two, it had 300,000. And a week after that, it was being played by 2 million people and had caught the attention of the New York Times which in January last year acquired the game. I think people kind of appreciate that there's this thing online that's just fun, he said of his creation. It's not trying to do anything shady with your data or your eyeballs. It's just a game. Welcome, Josh Wardle. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. You, you made the Wordle prototype in 2013, I believe. What was it that made you return to it sort of nearly a decade later? I, so I think that's always been part of my creative process i have very few ideas i think 
they, they just, uh, I just returned to them again and again. And there was something about that original Wordle that definitely stuck with me. Awesome. Um, and I knew there was something there, but it didn't quite work. Quite frankly, COVID was a big part. I was sitting around in my apartment, not not doing a great deal. <laughs> and then also, um, I for those who don't know, I made the game for my partner. She was really enjoying New York Times, makes a game called Spelling Bee, which is a once a day word game, very similar. And I wanted to make a game for her. Uh, I, I'm often motivated to create things for the people I know, for the people I love. <laughs> so it felt kind of natural to return to this this idea, update it visually, and uh, include some of the things that I had learned in the in the interim. And that yeah, that led to Wordle. How did you present the the game as a present to your partner? Okay, so I'm pretty bad at. The, at that stuff, you know, love languages and all that. I think I was just like, "Hey, I made this game. Do you want to play it?" Uh, she and she had played the original prototype and was aware of it. And she'd also in, in one of the things she did in the intervening years is I built another game, which was not really a game. So there are uh, thirteen thousand five-letter words in the English language or in the dictionary I was using for Wordle. And I knew from the original prototype the way it works is it just selected one of those words and showed it to you. But the problem is that there are a, a, a lot of words in the English language, five-letter words, that I have no idea what they mean. So like Gorsi, G-A-W-C-Y. I can't even remember what it means, but it is a valid word. And so in that original prototype, you would sometimes be guessing words that you didn't know were words, and that felt unfair. <laughs> so I needed to like filter that word list down. So I built this other game, which just showed you one of the five-letter words, and she went through and categorized all 13,000 words, whether she knew them, she didn't know them, or she maybe knew them. And that filtering then formed the basic word list for Wordle, which was the the version version I launched with. So she was aware. That's um that's a real act of love, like basically doing some data entry for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it it was interesting. She was in a she was in a, a place mentally where she wanted something mindless, you know, where she could just kind of zone out. It was both soothing some part of her and then it was also helping me classify all these words did you ever have any debates like where she tried to take a word out that she didn't know and you were like no people will know that word yes yeah, so um she is she is from the us i'm from the uk so there's a lot of uh, transatlantic differences um and also when we when the game started picking up it became apparent that there was a responsibility as the as the game creators right like the, the, we had these people playing coming back and playing the game mm. every day and that they we had implicitly suggested to them that the words would always be something that they knew and i think one got through early on it was masse i think i'm not uh, m a s s e i think technically there's an accent on the e and it's a type of ricochet shot right in billiards i believe or pool that was one that somehow had slipped through the filtering. And so we actually went back and visited again. And then we had a more, you know, there are a lot of words that maybe have one meaning, which superficially seems fine, but maybe have another meaning, which has, you know, some negative connotations. And so we really, it was, it was a, it was a back and back and forth on, on a, a, a discussion. I was very happy to be doing that with somebody else, actually, because those decisions are hard to make on your own right yeah and where did you land on the you know i'm talking about in these very early days where did you land on the sort of uk us spelling the ous and all of that stuff uh well i've gone i'm i can't even remember <laughs> i've been in the us for long enough where i i i 
kind of my accent has got a bit mangled and um, my spelling definitely has. And she was very adamant. She was like, hey, you made this game for me. I'm an American. We're having American spellings. So I was like, okay, that works. So I, 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 but we were inconsistent with it, I think. I think. But, but any word list, this was a big takeaway for me as well, is subjective. What gets included and not included, who decides, who knows what words, right? It's all arbitrary. And so having one or two people making those decisions is as good a means as any, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's like the ground zero for you. You can't keep politics out of games. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It was it was fascinating. And, and obviously with the New York Times, that is much a much bigger issue, right? Like when it was just me and her, two individuals, it's less charged, I think, certain words. But then uh, the New York Times, they had their own idea uh, about how this stuff should work as well, yeah, yeah. which which I understand uh given given their their standing in the world there's an argument that the the american spelling is actually the sort of more the purer version of english because it's was the version that was exported before the french corruption of like english language so so you, you know i think you can get away with it <laughs> i have a lot of people in my emails very offended that uh that the American spellings were were, were cropping oh, up. Well, now you have on. the perfect comeback that it's it's them that are, <laughs> who are wrong. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned you mentioned there that you you grew up in the UK, and um, yeah, I I mean I've not actually heard you speak before this phone call, so I wasn't sure if you were going to have a um, a lovely thick Welsh accent, which uh, which you don't, but you did grow up in Wales, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we moved from London to a farm in South Wales when I was five years old. So I lived in Wales for most of my life and then, um, yeah, moved to, the, moved to the US in like 2008. Were video games a part of your, of your childhood prior to that? Yes, yeah, they always have been. I, I, I have two older brothers and uh, we had, the, my eldest brother, Tim, he had a, a ZX Spectrum. Yeah. I think technically it's really a computer, but you could also play games on it. Right. You know, yeah, it yeah. was, you could program, but we were only interested in the games. I remember that. And then that, that followed up with him, he and my, uh, my other brother, Kit. I think they clubbed together and bought an Amiga 1200. Through them, I discovered games on these systems where the games were unbounded by rules i would say it was it felt like game developers making things up and like everything was very novel and new mm -hmm. and there were no like boundaries on what you could and couldn't do and so that 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 led to some amazing games but also some quite frustrating games and especially as a younger person i, I think my motor skills weren't really there and then feeling that the games were a bit unfair or like very very difficult and not well balanced and stuff like that so those are those are the thoughts i am um, I really remember. Were you the youngest of the three or the middle kid? Yeah, I was the youngest. The youngest. I was the youngest. Okay. So, and, and what my brothers were interested in had a very large influence. You know, I was just interested in what they were interested in. You go on to obviously become a software engineer. Were you at all interested in the capabilities of these machines to, to make some of your own games as well? Oh, I wish. I wish. I think, so I had, in primary school, I had a teacher... Stuart Ball was his name, and he was kind of discovering programming and was encouraging us kids to get involved in it. And we had like a, I think it, must have, it was a PC running some version of Windows in the classroom. He also let us play Doom. He reached out to me 
post Wordle and we had a nice chat and he was like, if I were to let primary school children play Doom, uh, these days I'd be fired. But but it was the the it never seemed like something I could do. Like I always enjoyed, you know, like choose your own adventure books or things like that. Things that, that would correspond to a fairly simple type of game programming. But I never I never made that leap and I'll never I'll never I'll never know. I was just much more seduced by the fun of playing the games and uh, rather than creating them. So the the format of this podcast is that I'm asking you to choose the five games you'd like to put on your sort of perfect mini console um, and put out into the world. Can you tell us about your first choice, which is from sort of around this time, 1990? One thing I want to uh, just mention before I get into the games was that the my interpretation of the of the brief of the 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 podcast was, which I found interesting, was that, and I'm not sure what your other guests have chosen here, but I went for games that had the biggest impact on my life, I think. Not necessarily the best games I've played or the games I've played the most of, but games that happened to touch me at a moment that when I look back was significant in in some way. And I think maybe that was the meaning of your your brief, but I, I, I asked a number of people this question and it was quite interesting that they interpreted it in different ways and also the variety of responses. It's it's open to interpretation. I think that's interesting. So it says something about which, which route a person chooses to go down. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or the SNES, as people call it in the UK. It came out in 1200s this was the first game console my family owned and myself i believe i pitched in for this one although my contribution was fairly meager in the grand scheme of things so better your pocket money yeah yeah i didn't have access to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, liquid assets at that <laughs> moment in my life what was interesting to me looking back on this game i, I think super Mario world is widely considered one of the greatest video games ever made mm. and I was completely oblivious to that, obviously, at that moment in time. It was just it was just a game. This obscure indie game from Japan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I didn't know what a good I was just playing games. I didn't know what a good game should feel feel like. I didn't know what a bad game should feel like. And mm, yeah. it's only looking back on it that I can really appreciate how good that game is i think the only inkling i had of that was when i would go to a friend's house and they were in like the sega ecosystem so they had a uh mega drive or it's called genesis in the u.s and they they would have like sonic and i would try playing sonic and it just felt bad to me like in <laughs> like and, and and i think a lot of this is nostalgia on what you grew up with but I've returned to Super Mario World so many times and, and the control system for one, it's like so well balanced the way you move in the game. Yeah. And then on top of that, there is this layering of mechanics that are fairly simple on the surface, but when added together, kind of result in this, you discovering new aspects to the game. So for instance, you can run and then the way that you run changes when you're holding an item 
in in that opens up new ways of thinking about the game and playing the game. It was kind of wasted on me at the time. Like I loved playing the game, but now looking back at it, I can kind of appreciate how impressively constructed that game that game is. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. That that period of life when you're you're young and you haven't developed your tastes yet, and you know, it, it, in a way, it's important to become discerning as you get older. But I, there's something wonderful where you're just like play play any old nonsense when you're young and just like sit there and you won't be put off you'll just go for it and go for it and then sometimes you encounter something that's genuinely brilliant which you realize looking back um much later there's definitely games i've had that with and and also games i played at that time sort of for hours and hours that now just um how on earth did i put up with this oh yeah yeah and um you know were your were your parents sort of up for you having a video game console because i know that's not the case in every young household we had in our household we had limits on screen time or it was really tv time i can't remember i think around the time we got the super nintendo those limits kind of collapsed right yeah like, there was no way like we were so hooked that there was no way to uh to really keep us off the the the, the gaming the gaming system i think there's going to be parents all around the world that have a great deal of empathy with your parents this comes a point where you're like i i've lost this war yeah. just go and you can live in an ipad now. yeah 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 we we grew up on a farm and a part of that was an expectation that we participated in the farm you know doing chores and stuff like that so there was hmm. never um it always there was always there's always something to be done on a farm uh-huh. basically and so i i think in the grand scheme of things we were fairly active outside all the time by dint of living on a farm which meant that the you know the the we weren't sat inside on the video game console all the time yeah it's quite a outdoorsy childhood what, what sort of farm was it did you do a bit of everything it was a organic livestock farm, so we raised uh, sheep and cows and pigs and some chickens and ducks at its at its peak. And you know, do you leave that world when you go off to university, the world of farming, or is it does it happen before that? I, being the youngest son, I was uh, I stayed on the farm for the longest amount of time, and I was still working on the farm up until the point I left and went to university. I think me and my brothers, it was always clear that none of us were going to take over the farming business. That said, I think the experiences I had growing up on the farm, specifically relating to animals and also actually relating to my work ethic, which I I got from my dad, who was kind of leading the charge on the farm, um, are parts of my upbringing that have had a large impact on my life long after I left the farm. And I think still impact me to this day. So even though I don't think of myself as a farmer, I I think the farm, yeah, had an outsized impact on who I am today. You have the soul of a farmer, or the work ethic at least. (laughs) (laughs) Was there any, did you and your brothers feel any pressure to take over the farm? Was there a sense of, well, you know, at some point this is going to, won't be around anymore if you don't take it on? Or did you not feel that? I didn't, I didn't. Feel that I'm not sure if they did either. And the, the farm, it wasn't like we grew up on a farm. My parents decided to move to the farm, you know, in the late 80s. So they weren't they weren't farmers. My dad worked on a farm in his youth, and it had always been something he wanted to do. So it was kind of returning to that. But it wasn't like this, you know, handed down. We are a legacy, a family of farmers, or anything anything like that. There was never real 
a real discussion uh, about it. But now that me and my brothers are older and my parents are getting older, there is some talk of like what we would like to happen to the farm, especially right. both my brothers have their own children now. And the farm as a place for children is quite fun and exciting. You know, it's the space and there's all these things going on. Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose there's a sense where you always feel a bit nostalgic for your own childhood and maybe want to pass that on to your own kids in some way. Maybe that's what uh, your brothers are experiencing at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's right. So um, what year do you go off to university? 2003. I think I, I started my undergrad at Royal Holloway around then. Well, just before we get to that, let's come to your second choice then, which dates from 1997. Can you tell us about it and also how tell us how you encountered the game? The second game on my list is Quake 2, which is a first-person shooter from uh, id Software. So as I mentioned, Doom played uh, quite uh, quite an important role. At your primary school. <laughs> At my primary school, yeah, as part of my education. And have played a lot of Doom and Wolfenstein and Duke Nukem, those, those sorts of games. And Quake 2 was my first experience playing one that was actually a 3D uh, rendered uh, world. So me and my friends, a game that almost made the, my list but didn't was Goldeneye that I used to play a lot of with my friends. We were very uh, competitive and uh, one of my friends actually competed in a competition in the UK to find the best Goldeneye player and he came third. Oh, wow. And the prize for f- finishing third was a PC, which seemed odd for a console <laughs> gaming competition. And Quake 2 came pre-installed on that PC, so he started playing it online like playing deathmatch and he suggested i give it a try and so that was how i uh came to start playing quake 2 i think i built i built my own pc we had like a family computer but i built my own and was playing quake 2 online over a dial-up modem so a 56k modem uh, you know terrible in rural wales terrible ping I think, but the reason this game makes my list is that it was my first experience of social interaction online. In Quake 2, they were called clans, so it was like teams of people, groups of people who would get together and play against one another. And this was the first time I'd experienced anything like this. It included my introduction into IRC chats, rooms online, and it kind of opened this world up to me on the on the internet that I previously hadn't known existed, and I, th- I I think that my guess is for most people who you interview, there will be a game like this where the internet, a, a game that they played over the internet where they were interacting with other people that kind of blew the whole world open. And Quake Two was that that one for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for better and worse, the introduction to the internet. I mean, I, I think we're a, a similar age and there was a sense of playing playing those games there in the early days of internet connectivity where it, it, it felt like this new thing. I mean, I know that there were online games that predated that, but you sort of you know needed access to 
university mainframes and things like that. This was the first generation of games that you could play, like you say, via a modem. And it felt new and exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The big thing for me, though, I was terrible. I'm still terrible at first-person shooters. And I was bad at the game. But what captivated me was the social aspect, being on a team with people, chatting with people. I was like, I was social in the real world at that age, but I found it easier to express myself in this digital world, chatting with these people, which, as you say, is both kind of, it's amazing and terrifying, like the kind of spaces that existed online, I suppose, at that time. And so in the game almost feels incidental to me, it was really, given where my career has led me, it was like so striking that this was a moment I was chatting to people I'd never met, I never would meet in real life. And I built relationships with those uh, with those people, even though we had nothing in common other than this video game yeah. that I played. And that was, you know, b- based on my experience going on to work at Reddit, you know, where it's pseudonymous people interacting with one another around their passions uh, felt like very, uh, very prescient. You know, these days, one of the things that we've lost a bit is the online forum, which is where people gathered around a particular subject matter or interest, right? And, you know, I certainly had a lot of those experiences you're describing there of getting to know people really well who, you know, lived on the other side of the world or you had no chance of ever meeting. Games probably still fulfil that function in a young person's life. And maybe, you know, Reddit as well uh, is one of the last bastions of that style of being on the Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Internet as well. Are you, uh, you know, now you've got a powerful PC and you're getting involved in the the internet or pockets of the internet are you starting to get interested in how to code i am actually the first um i was building at that point kind of static websites for clans in quake 2 so it was all in service of this like social community but that was yeah that was really my first experience of like oh you can you know it's kind of geocities era of the internet where you can like put things up online and people will view them and but it wasn't upon reflection what i realized is i didn't really know what programming was at that time and had i known to ask the question or what questions to ask i think it would have led to some very interesting i kind of hit a dead end making the html sites where i felt they couldn't be 
as dynamic or responsive as I wanted. And I think what I was really looking for was, you know, some sort of, you know, PHP type solution or, or, or a web server running somewhere, but I didn't know any of that. So I was kind of left in my own little world quite contentedly, to be honest, because I didn't know what I was missing, creating, uh, you know, websites using HTML tables and whatever horrific things we used to do uh, back in the day as web designers. And you're, um, you know, before you go off to, to uni, you're, I assume, starting to think about what you might want to do with your life. What, did you have any plans then? And how did you pick what course you were going to do? Funnily enough, I actually, I was like, I want to be a game designer. I love games. And I found like, I don't know, some university which had a, a game design course and I remember that the required grades were like very low, very, it was like you need a D and an E or something. And I, I remember telling my parents about it and they were like, ah, you'll probably get more value if we, if you just go to a, a very good institution and kind of like move around. I ended up doing, it was called Media Arts. It was uh, at Royal Holloway, which was a 50% theory, 50% practical media course. So I met some people there who are very, who are much more connected to the art world and thinking about art. And it suddenly made art as something accessible to me, whereas previously it was something for other people, you know, done by other people. And these people that I met at Royal Holloway really made art seem like, well, I could be a, I could be an artist. Like these ideas aren't so far beyond uh, me. So it had a it had a big impact on me. I, I do wonder what would have happened if I had explored the, the the gaming dimension. By the way, I love that you're contemplating whether you would have made a successful video game had you studied video game design at college. Well, here's the thing. So I've since the success of Wordle, I had the opportunity. I went to GDC and gave a talk there at Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. And I've got to meet, you know, some game developers who I really admire and you know, just hang around in those circles. And what's become apparent to me is I don't think or talk like a game developer. And and I think that's been, t I feel very inadequate actually hanging around with game developers because they clearly, they live and breathe this stuff and they're thinking, and, and I'm like more in this kind of art, slightly artistic space where I'm just kind of exploring the things that are interesting to me and so I, I would love to think of myself as a game developer but I haven't felt that way uh, and, and that's not that the people have been in, you know incredibly nice to me and including me and stuff but it's just like I see the level of depth and thought that they put into the work that they're doing and I feel like oh, I, I invented a five-letter word game. Let's uh, let's just uh, move forward to talk about your your next choice, which comes a few years later, I think. Yeah, so this is The Witness that was released in 2016. This game is interesting to me. Like I played Braid and I loved it. And I thought Jonathan Blow was a very interesting individual in the kind of games as art space. And so I was, I, I, th I think the phrase you would use is hyped. I was hyped for The Witness uh, when it came out and I played it. And I, I, for those not familiar, The Witness is a game that takes place on an island 
much like it's kind of like evokes maybe mist or, the, or those sorts of games no people it's all just scenery isn't yes it? yes and there is no there are no words in there or the no written words and no tutorial in the game it is a series of you explore the island and there are a series of puzzles that present themselves to you as these like panels with a grid that you have to trace a line that cannot intersect itself on this grid and you are introduced to rules that govern the way you can trace these lines. And this is that's very like talking about the very superfluous mechanics of the game. The the biggest aspect of the game and why it makes my list is that and I've replayed it recently actually, uh, and it still has this impact on me. It is a game that encourages me to think about the way I see the world in the very literal sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. Like how am I perceiving the world and that is striking to me that a game can have that power and that impact on me. Yes. In fact, I think a game is probably the only medium through which you could explore that particular question of how to view the world, like in quite a technical, practical way, isn't it? Just so well suited to video game form. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I think the game, there are a lot of very interesting decisions that went into that game so as i mentioned that having no language no written language no tutorials so the game describes itself to you and tells you how it should be played which i think i feel with a lot of games they it's easy to hide behind complexity i think and the witness does get very complex Mm. but the fact that it can get you to that point of complexity through the game itself like it, it gradually onboards you to these ever increasing puzzles in terms of difficulty mm. i think is beautiful like I, that is very very impressive to me i think the fact that it takes one idea which is tracing these lines that can't insect on a grid and it builds the entire game around them that is also very striking to me like i've always found with creative endeavors specifically the ones i did at reddit it was very easy to get into kind of a what if state, like what if we did this or what if we added this? And and those things always feel seductive because I think we often think that more is better. And, and what I've found through my own practice and what I see in The Witness is kind of a resistance of that. Uh, like what can we remove leaving only the core idea and, and that. I think I, I have so much respect for that approach to game design and puzzle design when the opposite is often so easy, right? Like it's easy to make something more complicated. It's very hard, I think, to simplify. Yeah, very true. So you moved to the US uh, to study your master's and then you join, as we've as we've alluded to, the website Reddit. I think people might be surprised to know that um, Reddit hires artists and interactive designers. So can you just talk a little bit about that? What were you, what were you hired to do? <laughs> well, so my, um, the original job that I applied to said they were looking for a part-time artist. And like I was in San Francisco at the time, I was working as a gallery assistant in a in, in not the nicest place. And so I was like, and I was using Reddit at the time, so I applied. And it turned out what they actually wanted was like they had an art project they wanted to do. Uh, people used to send Reddit postcards, and they would get uh, it was called Reddit Gold at the time. It's like the premium subscription, and if you sent a postcard to Reddit, you would get the premium subscription. You had to put your username on the postcard. And so they had this big stack of postcards from uh, users that they wanted to do something with. They wanted to do both a digital display and a physical display. 
And then it also turns out what they needed really was kind of a general office assistant, <laughs> someone to like help out and do all the things. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. So I, um, yeah, I applied and got the job. And this was, I didn't really realize what I was getting myself into. Like Reddit was, I think, less than 10 employees. Really? Wow. At that time. And like, these were like very, very capable programmers. Like it was, and I, I was just there having a good time. You know, I'm just, I'm just like, I was like, oh yeah, let's play a board game at, at 3 p.m. Not, not really realizing the significance of, uh, of the site like Reddit. I mean, they took a really big chance on me. You know, getting the job at Reddit has impacted so much of what I've done in terms of technology. Reddit was in the right spot where it was open to the kind of weird creative interpretations of things that I was interested in. So I ended up fitting in quite well. And, you know, it was also very disorganized, which really worked in my favor because I was meant to be part time. And what I slowly did, it shared an office with Wired magazine at the time. Yeah. And Wired had a really good kitchen. Reddit got free meals. So I started coming in more and more because I could get free food. You know, I didn't have any money at that time. And, um, and then, then, so I gradually worked this part-time job into a, into a, suddenly I was coming in full-time and helping out. And, uh, and then I was getting involved in other projects at, uh, at Reddit. And then I ended up kind of becoming a product manager at Reddit. So hang on. So you, so you'd come into the office to get some lunch on the day when you weren't supposed to be working and then they just go, Oh, Josh, come in and, you know, sit at desk. And I mean, quite Quite frankly, Simon, no one knew whether I should be there or not. You know, it was like, it was that level of, uh, there was a lot going were on. Were you just sending in an invoice at the end of the month or something with how many days you'd been Yeah, in? yeah, I, th I, I think so. I can't even remember. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I think Reddit has moved past yeah. this stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, to be involved in Silicon Valley at that time at a, at a company that was on that trajectory. Like I said, at the, at the time, I had no appreciation for what I was involved in. Yeah, so fortuitous. Yeah, it? yeah. And it's only looking back on it now that I can really appreciate what a special moment in time yeah. that was. Uh, also quite fraught, like Reddit made a bunch of pretty bad decisions, I think. Uh, and um, at, that, at that moment in time that it's kind of wrestled with since. But it Reddit became a huge part of my life both in terms of the work I was doing and how I was expressing myself as an artist online. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there, there are so many Silicon Valley startups and when you join one as like employee number 11, you, you never know if it's going to be one of the ones that goes all the way. But um, yeah, you picked very wisely. I, I was just happy to have a job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Free food. Let's, uh, let's move to your fourth choice. Were you still at Reddit when you start playing this game? And can you tell us about it? Yeah, so my fourth choice is... PUBG or Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which was launched in 2017. I was either at Reddit or Pinterest, I would have thought, at this at this point in time. But this game, for those unaware, is kind of like, not the first, but widely considered the popularizer of the Battle Royale genre. Yeah. So it's a first-person shooter. 
at that time there was one map in the game that was effectively eight kilometers by eight kilometers and a hundred players would start we'd drop out of an airplane at the start of the game and it's essentially like the like the movie battle royale it's a death match until only one person is left there's there's a circle that gradually closes that like narrows the areas of the map that that you can explore and this 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 genre has exploded and oh. it's kind of been explored to death I, I would say at this point but what struck me about the game i had an experience playing it for the first time when i dropped in and i saw another human player in the distance and they didn't see me and I effectively followed them for about 20 minutes in the game with them being unaware that I was following them. And that sort of interaction with another human wasn't like anything I'd ever had in a video game. Right. There was a tension there, right? Like, because it's a game where, you know, it's a deathmatch game where ultimately you're trying to eliminate other players. So there's a tension that any encounter with another human is kind of fraught but you don't have, the game didn't push you towards this fast paced, you know, kind of you spawn, you get killed and then you respawn and you, you repeat. All that stuff was kind of on the back seat. It was, the, there was this underlying tension, but it was really about, it felt exploring this world and like kind of looting and, and building up your inventory. All the while there were other people moving around in the world, which was just it really struck me. I, I, I really remember that that first experience. I went on to play the game a lot, and the more familiar you came with it and the more mature uh, I think the player base got, it became more like the fast-paced kind of deathmatch game. And, you know, now that is what the genre has become. But in those early moments, I think I'm fascinated by novel methods of interaction online, and that felt like a kind of experience that I'd never had before. And I've never really had since. In fact, there's uh, I can see a bit of a theme here because it comes back to that idea of restraint that you were talking about. You know, the culture at the time from, you know, the time of Quake really is like you say, fast paced matches, you die, you respawn, you're back straight in again. And here was a game that said, actually, we're just going to give you one life. And when that's gone, you sit there and you watch the other players until the game's over. You know, that's something that on paper you would think would, would never work. Um, I've actually got a piece about Battle Royale coming out today in the New Yorker. Uh, oh, wow. For that piece, I spoke to the creators of, of Warzone and they were saying, you know, the in the office at, uh, you know, the Call of Duty offices, they were like, this will never work. But in, in fact, that limitation, that restraint did really work in the game's favour. And I think I can see that in Wordle as well, because there's this real countercultural thing where you were like, I'm going to give you one puzzle a day and that's it. Like you have to wait a day until the next one. That's something that again on paper you would go, well, no, but you know, people want to consume as much as they can and that's how we're going to advertise them and make this thing profitable. But, but actually you chose a slightly different path there. I, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that parallel before, but now that you mention it, I think it makes, yeah, I think it does make a lot of sense. Obviously I wasn't thinking about PUBG and Battle Royale when I made that decision, <laughs> but I do think the patterns of engagement that get you know silicon valley technology companies and games optimize for is often more is better it's kind of you know like sugar sort of thing like just just indulge and keep indulging Bang. i think that that sort of exploration is inevitable as uh format is kind of maturing 
But once you get to a point where you can, yeah, really think about what, who is this serving and, and would people be open to a alternative, alternative way of exploring, exploring the genre? I think that is, um, I, I just wish more people did yeah. it, to be honest. I, I, I think it's so easy with games and technology in general is to kind of copy what has been successful. And I know why people do it, Both. but. I have found the, the things that I've done that have been successful, I think, like the button and place and Wordle, I think have kind of tried to think about the way people interact online in, in, and the way they engage with technology in, in a slightly different way that, that clearly there is appetite for in my mind. And I, and I wish more mainstream people would be willing to uh, embrace that or at least explore that. Can you just quickly tell us what what uh, the button was and how it worked? So this is the first, well, it's not commercial, but the first game you make for for Reddit, right? Yeah. So in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley has this dreadful habit of on April first of doing like joke things. And what they'll often do is companies will release a, like a, often it will be a mock press release about a product that they didn't make, but kind of is a pastiche of one of their existing products, and it's kind of very funny and everyone laughs, and then you know no one remembers it. And at Reddit, I encouraged us, I had the opportunity to come up with an April Fool's Day project. And I suggested that we do something that was more like a social experiment. So the button was, there was a button and a timer on the website. And everyone was looking at the same button and the same timer. And the timer counted down from 60 seconds. And you, when you press the button, uh, the timer would reset back up to 60 seconds and start counting down. But crucially you could only press the button once. So once you press the button, you could never press it again. And kind of the question there was, will people, how long will the collective internet decide to keep this timer running? Right, until it gets to zero. Yes, yes, before it gets to, before it gets to zero. And we kind of had no idea. There was no, no, there was no like, we didn't say what was going to happen when it reached zero. We didn't say there was a prize or anything like that. It was just like, what if we put this thing out there? Well, was there a prize? No, absolutely no prize. It was just the project stopped, right. uh, which was very important to me, actually. Um, uh, and what happened was, so firstly, it turns out that people will spend two months. So every for over two months, every 60 seconds, someone somewhere on the internet pressed this button wow. to reset the timer. And uh, so that was over a million people pressed the press the button. And what emerged was, which was so fascinating to me, was this kind of rich um, law created around the button based on what time was left on the button when you pressed it. So, for instance, if the timer read 59 seconds and you press the button and it reset to 60, you had effectively added one second to the project's lifespan. And so you were thought of in those cases as being kind of compulsive and impetuous. Whereas if you press the button when there was one second left on the timer, reset it to 60, you had added 59 seconds. Like you right. Would, you had held on to this button press, which was this really valuable thing. You're a discerning genius. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's come to your to your last game, which uh, you, you emailed me about this before before we spoke, just to ask if it would be okay. And it's absolutely okay. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so my final game is the New York Times crossword. You had a launch date before when we when we started talking. I can't remember what you said it was in actual fact. Well, right. So the uh, the New York Times crossword first, I think, came out in 1942. Prior to that, 
the the writers at the New York Times looked down their noses at um, at crosswords. I think it was described as a primitive form of mental exercise, <laughs> uh, and it, it did actually also come out on the Nintendo DS in 2007. But I guess most people now know it from the from the app, right? Wow, I didn't know that DS uh, that DS uh, piece. That's a deep cut. Wow, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so. Uh, the MYT crossword, I probably started playing in, I'd say, like 2017 or something. And, and for those who aren't familiar, the New York Times, probably, I'm not sure how it factors in the in the, in the the UK. I know the UK has a big crossword scene, but in the, in the US, the New York Times is like the gold standard of uh, crosswords. And they have this interesting format where the crossword gets harder as the week goes on. Mm. So there's one a day, Monday is the easiest, Sunday is the hardest. Bizarrely, Thursday is a bit of an exception. Thursday is often challenging as well. And um, so what that what that means is, as I was talking about before, the kind of on-ramp to games is often your progression with New York Times crosswords is you can do a Monday, you can maybe do most of a Tuesday, and then you kind of get stuck on a Wednesday. And over time, you can see yourself progress and get better and better. Yeah. That said, I think that despite that progression, I think that crosswords, specifically New York Times crossword, is pretty unforgiving to new players and there's a lot of jargon and specific rules you need to learn about crosswords and specifically the new york times crosswords that allow you to solve so for instance there are certain three-letter answers that crop up all the time so like brian eno eno really good combination of of letters in 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 a three-letter word so he gets deployed a lot if you don't know who brian eno is you're gonna you're gonna be really confused by the Eno clues, but once you learn it and you know to look out for it, then then it kind of unlocks this aspect of the game. And I, I think that's kind of bad game design, in my opinion. Why should you know who who Brian Eno is? Uh, and and, the, and the, you only learn that through failure. You have to like kind of well, what what is a Eno? And then you learn its person. And then I don't think I would have had the patience to learn those rules. But Pollock, my partner, she was already playing. She knew how crosswords worked. And what we started doing was playing the New York Times crossword together. And I think over the course of about four years, we played it every day together. And and what really struck me was crosswords as a multiplayer experience, a a co-op multiplayer experience, which is something that I hadn't really thought about before. But there's something about, so crosswords work, there's a clue, and sometimes the clue is there's a double meaning or it's not quite as literal as as you would think. And those working on the crossword with someone else as a way to come to understand how they see the world was really interesting and very connecting experience, actually, with my partner, like seeing how she would relate to things and think of things. And there are certain types of clues that she can always get that I'll never get and vice versa. And that 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 feels so much more rewarding to me than doing the crossword on my own It's doing it with someone else and coming to understand something about them through us solving these these puzzles together. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, yeah, like you say, there's loads of interesting little design flourishes that you wouldn't think at first glance. You know, they're obviously the meta difficulty through the week. And, uh, you know, if you're using the, the app as well, it times you each day. So you, lots of people try and do it under 20 minutes or whatever, don't they? And then... Um, 
gives you a little star when you've completed it. So you're, you know, almost like Nintendo-esque sort of, you know, little tricks to, to give you a buy-in and keep you coming back. You you had some of those techniques as well in, in Wordle, didn't you? So in your your day streak, that's something you came up with, right? That wasn't added later. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was in in from the start, and that was that was both spelling bee and the crossword had uh, influence on the creation Wordle. Uh, you know, the the one a day being a big part, and yeah, these these streaks. Uh, that was something while we were playing every day that was very very important to us and was a, a motivator to. Uh, to, to keep us playing. Well, I mean, thank you so much for, for your choices. Uh, I've super enjoyed hearing all about them. Uh, just before we finish, I wanted to ask you a little bit. I'm, I'm sure people would be interested. You know, when you sold Wordle, it was it was a big news story. It was on all the radio programs over here and on the telly, and I'm sure it was uh, in the US where you are too. Uh, what was it like to to go through that? And you did the did the sort of money that you got from that change your life in any meaningful way? That's an interesting question. I think that's so my experience of Wordle building up in the days building up to the sale was actually not that enjoyable. It was deeply stressful. Like I was in this weird spot where I was there was this, you know, viral game for want of a better word, and that I wasn't I'd set out not to commercialize in any way. And in fact, I was like quite principled about that. Like I didn't want to show ads. And what I discovered was other people had no such scruples, right? Wordle knockoffs proliferated. And I I didn't have any issue with the, you know, like dawdle and cordle people kind of riffing on the idea. But there were some people who basically took the game and the name and just put it on the internet or an app and put ads next to it. And that felt really, really bad to me, which was something that I'm still processing, actually. It's like I had said I didn't want to make any money from Wordle, and I was fine with that. But over here, there were some people who decided that they wanted to make money off Wordle. It wasn't money I was going to make anyway, so I should have been okay with it. But there was something that felt deeply wrong about that. It left me in a position where it was kind of unclear what my path forward should be you know in terms of i was giving the game away for free i didn't want to start paying a lawyer to uh, you know issue cease and desists i i didn't want wordle to become my full-time job it has been this thing that i'd done for fun and so the sale to the new york times part of it was to alleviate that pressure it wasn't uh ecstatic euphoric i've, I've sold this thing it was more this pressure has released and it's not something that I need to concern myself with anymore. And so for me personally, it was inevitably with something like Wordle, likely the most impactful thing I'll ever do in my life. I think there'll, there'll always be a question that I'll ask myself is, Bang. you know, what if I hadn't sold Wordle to New York Times? What if I'd continued to uh, explore it on my own? And what I have to come back to in those moments is how I felt at that time. And I was quite frankly, miserable. I was deeply unhappy and I'm much happier now post, uh, post Wordle. Yeah. That's been a really interesting, uh, experience, experience to go through in terms of the, the, the money. I think uh, it hasn't changed how I live my life or I will hope that it, and that I will hope that that will continue. I'm very keen for that not to be for me not to be that kind, that kind of person. Um, I think 
it's also been an experience. Um, I'm interested in your take on this, actually, because like my experience, obviously, Wordle was a hot new thing. Everyone wanted to talk to me. And it felt like what really was a value was me. I was giving something by talking to reporters, right? There was I was getting something in return. I was getting Wordle publicized, but I felt I didn't really need Wordle publicized. Mm. But they were getting the creator of Wordle talking on their show. And, and that really made me withdraw from that. And I've been very selective, I think, about the things that I've chosen to do. And it was just so striking to me how the expectation and the default behavior is that people want fame, for want of a better word, and trying to navigate that in a way that feels authentic to me has been, I, I try and explain it to my friends or, or, you know, people that I meet. And I think it's not, they don't really understand why I wouldn't, you know, milk wordle for all it's worth, <laughs> I suppose. The first thing is like, the New York Times is really the best place it could have ended up, right? That's the thing that inspired you, that you were, you know, and to be part of the family of those games that you appreciated and enjoyed yourself, that's that's worthwhile, right? That says to me that you, it landed in the right place and you made some good decisions in a very, in the middle of a storm, right? Very difficult to make those right decisions. Um, I mean, yeah, it, you're absolutely right. There is a sort of transactional thing whenever a journalist approaches someone for whom something is going on you know in their life i'm the kind of character i am i prefer to like turn up after the circus has moved on that's the sort of work i prefer to do and but the idea of like having to compete with i don't know like other other journalists to speak to someone i find uh, difficult but that's as much to my temperament as anything and and also i don't want to be dishonest about it like i want to talk to you because i'm launching a podcast and it would be great for me to go hey i spoke to the creator of of wordle i am getting something out of that as well but um i don't know all of those things all of those true things co can coexist right can't they yeah yeah i think that's uh i think that's absolutely right Okay, well, with that in mind, I mean, thank you for opening up. I know it's not it's not easy to ever like talk about success, particularly in like financial terms, and for anyone who grew up in Britain, especially. Uh, so I appreciate you like talking about that, and also being so open about um, the emotional side of the last eighteen months that, that you've been through. It's it's just super interesting, and I think people will will empathise with with what happened. You know, if they're if they're decent thinking people <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> potentially damning to your to your listeners right there but no thank you so much for having me on like, like i said like uh yeah i i should reiterate right I, i'm being very deliberate with the things i choose to do and this was your email was intriguing it's been a pleasure to talk to you so i'm really thankful for having this time to uh to get to to get to chat with you thank you josh Wow, that uh, got a little more philosophical at the end there than I was expecting, but um, I felt like we got somewhere quite interesting. So I hope you agree. I hope you you were able to listen to that without feeling like I was being too indulgent or anything like that. Um, what an interesting guy Josh is. I didn't know like half of his story. So um, as he said, uh, he hasn't done tons of, of interviews, so it was wonderful um, obviously, I would say that it was wonderful to be able to um, hear some of that from him and, and his journey. And especially, I think, the 
um, human experience of what it is to go through making something for your girlfriends that then becomes a global phenomenon that everyone wants to copy and market and exploit and sell and what does that do when you have a particular vision for the kind of work you want to put into the world that is a lot to deal with isn't it when you think of it in those terms and um yeah, Josh, what a, lo- what a lovely person. And um, I'm so grateful to him for agreeing to talk to me for this utterly unproven uh, podcast. And um, yeah, so thank you to him. Thank you to you as well for listening this far into the podcast. I hope it's been uh, a worthwhile use of your time. Uh, I would love for you to subscribe to join me for the future episodes that will be coming out uh, in coming weeks and months. Have some wonderful guests lined up, um, some of whom I've already spoken to. And uh, I think if you are interested in this kind of um, subject area, then you will get a lot out of these conversations. I hope I certainly have. Um, please do subscribe if you have a moment right now. It would be wonderful if you could leave a kind review that will help to uh, bring the podcast to further attention, which in turn makes it more sustainable, which means I can keep doing them in the future. Um, it would be great to have your support at this very early stage, and I would be very grateful. You can contact me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com if you have any comments, thoughts, feedback, suggestions for guests um, in these sort of sections at the end. Maybe I'll read out some of that correspondence if appropriate. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. And I also have a Twitter account for the podcast, which I think is at my perf console. Please take a look at that uh, uh, for updates and um, hopefully new episodes will just uh, appear in your device as and when. Thank you again. I will see you next week when we have a new guest. There are five games and one perfect console. Bye bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.